Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Professor Tim Lenton to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Tim is Professor of Climate Change and Earth System Science at the University of Exeter. He has had a lifelong interest in the Gaia hypothesis and much of his recent work has been building on the work of James Lovelock, highlighting mechanisms by which the Earth system has been stabilised by negative feedbacks throughout Earth history. More recently, together with Bruno Latour, Tim has been exploring how humans could add some level of self-awareness to Earth's self-regulation, what they call Gaia 2.0. So thank you very much, Tim, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thanks for having me, Fergal. Great. I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about the work you've been doing with Bruno Latour around this idea of Gaia 2.0, all the work you've been doing in, in, in the area of tipping points and more generally systems thinking and earth system science. Can you maybe first just tell us a little bit about your background and current work focus, Tim? Sure. Um, So my name is Tim Lenton and I got excited about science as a teenager reading Jim Lovelock's books on the Gaia hypothesis and determined that I wanted to to join him in trying to understand and study the Earth as a living system. And so I've kind of trained in, in this interdisciplinary way to try to understand how did we come to be here in a world that can support the flourishing of complex life and how has past life shaped this incredible world that we enjoy now as well as other present life forms and then uh, even when i was growing up in in the sort of 80s and 90s we were highly attuned to climate change as an issue and so obviously training as someone who's tried to understand the earth as a system that's always been there alongside the other elements of the ecological emergency unfolding in my lifetime as things that I was not just keen to study in the sense of diagnosing the problems but I'm now more keen than ever to try to use that system's understanding to identify some way out of the massive hole we've dug for ourselves. Yeah absolutely. Um, so much uh, energy seems to have been uh, tied up in, 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 in debates about you know, what's happening, whether it's really happening and all that kind of thing. But the, 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 the momentum seems to have uh, shifted and there does seem to be, uh, although uh, new alignments of ideas um, trying to rationalize, in, in, uh, uh, I guess, uh, change uh, people supporting the status quo and, and, and those that are still looking, you know, recognize that we need change and, and dramatic change. So I'd, I'd be very interested in getting your, your, your sense of some ideas about ways forward and particularly given your, the depth of your understanding of systems approach is to, you know, problem solving or just systems thinking generally. Um, now, I mean, clearly we, we face, you know, a, 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 a series of, uh, uh, well, w- wicked environmental uh, and other crises. I'm just wondering what in particular is on your mind right now. Um, I, I suppose um, it, it's always on my mind this, that this is all interconnected. Um, 
and that we always have to dig deeper down to the root kind of causes of of these interconnected crises around climate change, species loss, the COVID pandemic, and so on and so forth. I mean, they're connected to varying degrees, but there's something that seems there's the fundamental flaws in a kind of dominant mode of a particular form of capitalism seem to be um, alive for all to see. And the dominant flaws in an ideology of modernism, as some would call it, that's been a great success in some ways, but now is sowed the seeds of its own destruction, I think, by kind of driving us to this point where we're trashing our life support system in simple terms. The climate change is coming back to sting us. And, um, and new zoonotic diseases in the short term are, hit, uh, are obviously hitting us hard. So we couldn't we couldn't have more like wake up calls for the for the need to re-examine um, some of our cherished uh, values and modes of operation without wanting to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. Yes, no, absolutely. Uh, the the uh, it's interesting you say that's a recurring theme on, on on many of the interviews is peeling back the layers and 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 you know the 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 the, the significance of uh, capitalism and particularly the last 30 years, particular kind of extreme financialized, globalized capitalism and so forth. Um, yeah. I, I'm just wondering about, um, you talk about systems thinking. I mean, to what extent do you think, in a way, you, I, I suppose some people would argue that, you know, the move towards a globalized economy what had, 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 you know, you could argue it was taking a systems approach and saying, well, we look at this at a very, you know, global level, at a, at a very high level, at a systems level, which, of course, didn't take into account a whole series of distributional kind of uh, impacts and clearly power and, uh, and capital and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, just before uh, uh, maybe talking about that in, in a bit more detail, just wondering how a systems thinking approach um, would, would, would uh, help us when looking <laughs> at an economic perspective? That might be a big question. Maybe. It, it, well, it's a good one. I mean, um, I, I, I think that my perception of talking to um, leaders in all sorts of sectors, as well as uh, just participants in all sorts of sectors, is um, many people recognize the need for change now. And many people, uh, policymakers in particular, I find, um, convey a sense of being paralysed by complexity, paralysed by things like, um, well, maybe I could do X, but if I did that and A, B, C and D over there, these other nations or actors in my sector or companies or whatever, if they didn't do anything, it would make no difference. Or, and the, we all hear these kinds of arguments as, as well as the paralysed by complexity, which is the one where people just throw their hands up in horror and go, oh gosh, it all looks so uncertain and interconnected and complicated. How on earth can I sort of know the consequences of my actions or whatever? Well, the beauty of training in systems thinking is it, it, it equips you to understand the connections, to wrestle down the complexity and to understand how it opens up opportunities so I'm particularly interested in the opportunities to tip, trigger tipping points of positive change towards sustainability, which I can explain in more depth. And it, it's a, that's a particular application of systems thinking towards trying to dig us out of this hole. You made some good points, Fergal, though. I'm not, you know, about 
about glo the globalized economy can have some clear benefits when, for example, if, if we had a, arguably, if we had a more globalized food economy, we would be even more food secure than we currently are, but we have a sort of halfway house food economy. Um, so if we, on, on those points, I don't want to make out that I'm uh, against uh, all elements of, uh, of, uh, of the current global economy on the contrary, but I grew up you know, marching with my student friends against the global agreement on trades and tariffs before it came into force. And I am, I mean, if we're going to get specific, there are aspects of the deregulation of markets that have clearly been um, a key part of driving the accelerating destruction of our life support system and our, our climate over the last, over my lifetime. And that's that's the part that I object to most in that realm. Yeah, no, that, that's it's very interesting you say that because um, systems thinking often gets well, I, I got the sense quite general, quite generic, uh, quite uh, 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 high level, um, quite abstract. Uh, and I, I, is there a uh, is it is it well connected with shall we say politics and power and to what extent? Right. Yeah. Do you do you see? Do, is that an area that's been well explored? And uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I no would be the short answer. At the moment, I'm enjoying collaborating with a friend, a colleague Simon Sharp, who's in the cabinet office in the UK in the COP26 team, preparing for the next United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change meeting in Glasgow, or virtually online, depending on the state of the pandemic. Um, and I really listened to Simon as someone in, in right in the depths of the policy system on this, and and he certainly convinced me that we we there's a lack there's a shortage of uh, complex systems thinking in this in that space, and that it could be a big help. So to make that specific. Um, we're, we're actually working together on identifying these tipping points of positive change that deliberate policy intervention could trigger. And, um, so we have these specific examples where in Norway, clever policy design has triggered a tipping point in the uptake of electric vehicles now being more popular than petrol and diesel cars. And in the UK, um, perhaps uh, with less foresight, but it happened, um, policy intervention has shut coal power out of electricity generation in just the last seven years or so when it was in 2012 40% of our electricity generation it's down near zero now and we have been using systems thinking to show how other deliberate interventions could could cascade these tipping points up to a changes in the global economy and to come back to your question I mean this can't be widespread in the sense that uh, we know that the UK decarbonisation of power and the Norwegian electric vehicles example are world leading in terms of triggering rates of decarbonisation. So if it was so obvious and this sort of systems thinking was so prevalent, um, other, other policymakers would have spotted that and would have realised that they can get an enormous amount of bang for their buck, if you like, by thinking in these non-linear systems ways. And the reason they're not, I believe, is they're wedded to a particular um, econ uh, welfare economics framework that is all about 
equilibrium and all usually all about the, the idea that there's only a single equilibrium when in fact there are many possible ones and it's all about marginal changes around that equilibrium state and it's completely obsessed with um, what it would call allocative efficiency of decisions you know and from so this is written in the UK into the Treasury's Green Book um, it's all about cost benefit analysis it's all about these little marginal tweaks well if we're talking about transformative change and we're talking about wanting to trigger transformative change to happen faster. We don't want uh, allocative efficiency and uh, marginal stuff. We need to look at what Simon calls dynamic efficiency. So we need to use his systems thinking to think, well, which interventions are the most effective to propel, you know, um, the transformative change that we need? Yeah, very interesting. It's a, a, a very uh, fascinating uh, interconnected area, as you say, that the, the impact of ideas, the ways of thinking about things, the power of idea, of economic uh, models and economic ideas. Just maybe one last question on that, because uh, I'd like to talk to you about Gaia 2.0 and, and, and some of your other ideas as well. But what would uh, systems th uh, thinking uh, have to say about uh, or guide us in how to deal with... Um, you know, late stage capitalism, the, the power, the hollowing <laughs> out of democratic institutions, the power of corporates, the offshore tax. I sorry, I won't throw in as many <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. elements as possible. But, um, you know, there's an assumption maybe or, or not, not. Maybe there is an assumption that uh, if, if we can design good policy, we can work out what to do. But what if there's no political will, if there's a lot status quo, if there's uh, economic interests that, that are, 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 you know, are happy with, 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 with many aspects of the status quo and so forth. Well, this is clearly why we would always need more than just some systems thinking um, to create change in the world. We obviously need an acute awareness of uh, power structures and values and, and these um, yeah, deeply important aspects. What would systems thinking have to say? Well, it's a sort of a tool, I suppose, and Donella Meadows is one of the great champions of systems thinking, if not the great champion, has for a long time emphasis this idea of leverage points. So where you know, where can you intervene in a system to affect change and how can you intervene? And that I find, you know, very apposite. Um, when I think most of us can agree we need some transformative change. So in many ways, I'm, I'm sort of credit, credit to Danala. It's, it's, this is just my efforts to do specific application of the identification of said leverage points and the activation of them. And that has to be done cognizant of power and, and the vested interests and so on, which in many ways you can frame as negative feedbacks, in other words, as damping mechanisms that wish to maintain the current status quo. Um, <laughs> so yeah. it's not difficult to fit them into a systems thinking framework, it, it, but it can be difficult to beat them or to do something about it. But at least, at least uh, systems thinking is a way of, can, can encapsulate that. And at a deeper level, um, I think we need what we need in addition is evolutionary thinking, by which I mean, I think one can almost characterize, uh, say, the current relationships between um, banks offering finance to fossil fuel companies to provide power and everything else that maintains contented voters that keep voting for the parties that 
um, support the banks that continue the subsidies or whatever example you want to give. In other words, there's a self-perpetuating persistent system or cycle in place, uh, but we need to replace it, in my view, with a different one. And so the replacement exercise or the idea of transformative change is also an evolutionary idea. So I think it helps to understand how dominant systems have evolved to be the dominant ones and of course where their weaknesses are as well as what other how another kind of system can can expand in a world with a hegemony with a dominant system you know that's not 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 obvious uh, what yeah. islands of innovation can how did you foster islands of innovation or of doing things differently yeah, it's very interesting. And it just occurred to me that uh, talking about tipping points, which is at the heart of a lot of your work, the, this idea that in a way, I, I suppose you could possibly make an argument, uh, maybe just for one an evening in the pub, but that 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 uh, maybe complete deregulation of capital movements actually tipped the kind of state of capitalism into this, what we have today, possibly. Exactly. And I, I, for my listening to interviews with some of the those responsible for that, for example, if we go back to the Thatcher era in the 80s in Britain, and you listen to what some members of the cabinet then say on reflection about the consequences of the choices they made then, they say quite literally, oh, we, we had no idea it was going to have this scale of ramification or this would, it would, would have such momentum behind it. Um, yeah, yeah. Some of them, at least, say it with regret, and so that that tells us everything we need to know. I think. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it's, it's very interesting, so, and I'd like maybe to come back to an element of that in in, in, in later in uh, talking about uh, Gaia two point zero and the idea of self awareness and the idea mm. of us uh, taking action. Uh, you know, to, to create change and the awareness underlying that. Can you maybe just? Uh, to, to, to tell us what 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 Gaia 2.0 the idea is and how it uh, I guess builds or develops on the original idea of Gaia. So yeah, the idea of Gaia 2.0 is that there is something different about us humans as a species, and that that we are kind of collectively self-aware of the consequences of our actions on the whole planet, or let's call it Gaia, our life support system. So I think that might be genuinely novel. I mean, who can know? But I don't think dolphins, although I think they're conscious, I don't think they're collectively aware of the effect of all dolphins on the ocean, or octopus would be another example, who are probably individually conscious. So I think we have, we have both a planet-changing power and a rare awareness about the, the planetary consequences of what we're doing. And what that brings to Lovelock's or Margulis's existing Gaia is something new. It's the possibility that you could have some self-aware self-regulation. In other words, we might, at least some of us, be collectively deciding that our current path of action is bad for us. And some of us, at least, are changing some of our behaviours because we've calculated or assessed that it's not good to carry on going the way we're going and that's a, an example of self-aware self-regulation if you like and that i believe is something new in gaia or in the earth system and it remember this is a so this is a four billion year old living planet where before now the original gaia is all about how could that how unconsciously could it have come to be that the 
that not all the time, but on average, um, life has got itself entwined in feedbacks uh, that make the world better for life, if you like, and help stabilize it sometimes. So that's a hard scientific problem in itself, and it's kept me entertained for <laughs> whatever, how long it is now, 25, pushing 30 years. Um, to, um, we're still working on that, but it, it, and that's a really interesting problem because that all has to come about automatically through, through principles of uh, feedback systems and certain forms of evolution, I think. We're different. We've come on the scene. We've got this extra element. And the question, it's really a question mark over us, is whether we will use this, this foresight and self-awareness uh, to, to self-regulate and to, to des- what I would, might call design a flourishing future for all of ourselves and for the other living things we depend on. And so the other element of the idea of Gaia 2.0 is hold on a minute, might we not learn something useful from 4 billion years of history of the biosphere with regard to how to power a flourishing civilization and how to cycle all the materials you need to flourish and how to organize the flows of information and the processes of learning in a way that is robust and productive and, and sustainable. So, yeah, that's where, that's where I and my friend Bruno Latour are trying to go with that idea. Yeah, very, very interesting indeed. How is Gaia itself now uh, viewed? It was a, uh, it's a very big idea. A very kind of, I guess you've got a paradigm shift, a different, very different way of seeing things. Uh, controversial, certainly. Uh, I guess still in, in, in and was uh, originally. How, how can you give a sense of how it's seen now? I would say that it's still dismissed as controversial or whatever in in quite a few uh, scientific quarters. Uh, I'm tempted to say by an older guard, but that wouldn't be wholly true. (laughs) Um, So there's still, I think there's a sort of um, a long tail or echo to the original arguments about Gaia, which were really had in the 1970s and 1980s when I was, you know, just a kid. Uh, So... um, I think the initial objection and dismissal of it by many scientists is still is still echoing through to the present. Either those scientists are still alive and working, and, and t- but also they'll have been teaching. You know, they've certainly been teaching the next generations of scientists yes. the sort of arguments and the objections of forty years ago. Now that's a little ironic because, like all areas of science, it's progressed hugely and. Lovelock himself, who's still alive and well at 101, had changed his position and developed his thinking a lot in his own lifetime. But um, yeah, I, I've tried, of course, hard to to keep developing the theory and progress our understanding instead of just dismiss it. And I like to think that we've got a little bit of progress in terms of other some other leading thinkers who were arch critics in the past, and I'm thinking particularly of a um, microbiologist, evolutionist for Doolittle, has come from being a dismissive arch critic to now a friend and one of the most constructive supporters, I would say, in terms of trying to flesh out a workable Gaia theory, if you want to call it that. So there's some movement, but I as a whole, I would say this has remained 
I'm afraid in the academic world, quite a marginalised idea, ironically, um, just when we might need it, if you like. Um, so it, I always felt it hasn't got the attention it deserves, even if you want, even if you object to it. Yeah. Uh, but happily, it has these other lives. So much of the thinking is put under a more scientifically correct brand of what we call Earth System Science, which I'd also, you know, be an uh, a professor in and an advocate of. So there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of Gaia by any other name has actually really permeated the thinking in Earth System Science. Um, so it's yeah. in that sense mainstreamed, but but without the mythological title. Yeah, a big a, a big topic uh, indeed. A, a very a rich, uh, fascinating uh, area. Are there one or two? Um, uh, areas that you think that um, by, by by embracing Gaia, even in its or, or original or, or more recent uh, evolution, let's say before Gaia too, that that would change how we see, how, how we would approach dealing with the crises we're in. Exactly, Fergal. That, that's the key for me. Perhaps the key motivation is that uh, it is a different worldview in simple terms because when you start thinking Gaia, you're thinking, you have to sort of Im immerse your imagination in this world of other living agents. And to start with, they're all tiny bacteria and whatnot, but they're creating their own conditions for flourishing or survival, creating little recycling loops of all the resources they need, starting to affect the climate on larger and larger scales. This network of actors, um, extends its influence and its effects out over space to the global scale and over time to four billion years and all and it creates the conditions then in which progressively more complex life forms have evolved and then been some of them sort of filtered into the to the regulatory mechanisms um, and that's a, a kind of beautiful view of the world in my <laughs> prejudiced view but also it, if we look at our contemporary malaise or crises of climate change and, and COVID and, and the ecological crisis, it's about seeing the agency in all the other living things and the interdependencies we have with them and they have with each other. And I think that most of that gets woefully ignored when we sort of single issue talk about or about these issues and we just look at it from a very you know narrow human perspective um, and sometimes there's a help a literal help in thinking about the role of the other biological agents because because actually that's the key to understanding what can maintain flourishing conditions for all of us say flourishing agricultural systems where we don't trash the soils and all its um, biodiversity uh, but also more, uh, perhaps it's more philosophically, but more, more generally, I like to say that that kind of thinking hopefully can help re-empower us when we think about how can we act to change the world. I think our modernism and our culture has made us think that we always default to authority and we either, we generally find ourselves just blaming government or uh, for not doing what we wish it would do. Actually, I think if you take the Gaia perspective, you re-realise, hold on, 
little individual agents like you and I can change the world because those things have always changed the world or they, they've always had a chance to change the world because they, by forming networks, by sharing information, by learning, by doing, and so on. So might sound a little fruity or philosophical, but, but that's one way I like to use it to, as a worldview. Uh, it, uh, that's that's wonder, wonderfully put. Um, and, and, and in terms then of the, the self-awareness, as you say, this has unfolded over four billion years. How, how, when do you start to see self-awareness enter the, <laughs> the, the story? Um, I mean, it does seem to be the case that even with respect to, you know, uh, climate change, that I think it's unfair to say, uh, you know, that, that uh, to overly uh, dramatize that we've known about this for a long time and clearly the scientific community has. Um, but in, yeah. in terms of general awareness and people's lives and even not looking at people who are polarized or against, you know, or something to lose, yeah, or, yeah. Or, you know, it's still a very, very, very recent that we, we, exactly. we make that connection. Exactly. If our eyes are opening, they're sort of flickering open around now, essentially. And some are, some are choosing or other, I don't know whether choosing is the right word, but some are choosing to close them or to avert them and to, to happily immerse themselves in a growing world of fake news. So it, it, it's, it's a very much a, a, live, a live political issue right now about whether we are um, gaining any collective self-awareness or whether we're actually at risk of losing it in the last, in recent years. Um, so it's by no means a given, but something I would fight for passionately. Um, and as my friend Bruno Latour would say, well, even if we've, there's no coherent evidence that we've ever used foresight um, effectively, at least our collective self-awareness would allow us to correct our mistakes quicker. And the point there is if we just wait for the slow processes of natural selection or whatever, to to correct the mistakes that we're making well it'll be pretty brutal and it'll be quite slow and clumsy and in the past in those past four billion years there have been these times of revolutionary change of the biosphere of the planet the composition of the atmosphere the climate that i've written about and they were driven by life and it, they did have profound consequences for life and they were pretty tumultuous at the time and it took millions of years for a new stable dynamically stable state to arise well we that we none of us should be voting for that option because it will be clumsy and brutal if anyone were to make it through uh, such a brutal selection mechanism and that's that's why i think it's so key that this collective self-awareness is is cherished and deployed if possible <laughs> Yes, very, very, very interesting. Um, you, you've done uh, a lot of work on, on the, the, the whole area of tipping points um, and, and more recently as well. Can you talk a little bit about that, um, how useful it is in terms of looking at something like global climate change uh, as against maybe some regional things, uh, mm -hmm. dimensions of change and so forth? Uh, it seems on the one hand, um, I mean, I like the way you talk about leverage and, uh, you know, and positive mm. tipping points. We don't necessarily hear so much, so much about those. But as a, uh, I guess, as a metaphor, it, it is, uh, creates uh, a, a sense of urgency as well. And that plays into how 
I guess the 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 problems we're facing are are, are framed, and the kinds of solutions that are being presented, and and the, you know by various uh, you know organisations, bodies, and political interests. Sure. So yeah, it's about fifteen years or so now, or twenty years that I've been working on um, on articulating. Well, what are these tipping points in the climate system that we might cross? Do they interact? Could they cascade into one big tipping point and so on? And the original motivation for going there or for shining a light on that was what I saw around me was a climate science community that's very worthy and and outstanding, but was scared or deliberately decided to avoid looking at the the, what it saw as the high impact but lower probability events because of the political battle we were in. They didn't want to be accused of being alarmists or talking about the, the less certain but more risky stuff. But I always thought that that was madness from a risk assessment point of view. You really need to know about the nonlinear bad stuff that could unfold and you need to get to the bottom of how likely or unlikely it is. So it was that kind of... Um, ri- risk and systems thinking that was making me originally want to shine a light on these these feedbacks, nonlinearities, tipping points. Because after all, I knew that Earth history, these were the pivotal mechanisms that had caused Earth history to be um, characterized by these sometimes intervals of abrupt change and sometimes long intervals of stability. So yeah, by then shining a light on that, of course, I recognized there there are some collateral risks of upping the ante and showing people that 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 you know these feedbacks could turn against us, and that the risk is greater from climate change than than people were thinking. Because of course that that then can be used to support an argument that okay we must geoengineer the climate to to get things under control. But thankfully so far that's stuck in the realm of hypothetical discussion um along along with much else um and i just feel you know your duty as a scientist is to tell it like it is so it just i thought it was um a dereliction of duty if we didn't if some of us or some didn't step up and actually try to explain and articulate that that the earth is not entirely a linear system where the response is proportional to the nudge you give it far from it um it can behave what we call very non-linearly, and we need we need to know when and how and what the consequences are. Uh, and happily, we can then use the same kind of thinking to think about how we change our own response to avoid the bad clip, the bad tipping points by, as I would argue, creating some good tipping points in our own realm. Yeah, I'd like to talk about the, some of the the ideas that you have there. Um, so you're, you're you're not uh, regularly checking the density, as it were, of the Greenland ice sheet or the West Antarctica ice sheet. How do you? What kind well, of time frame do you think about these uh, changes? Well, well, that's a really interesting thing because I am with my research group trying to develop what I would call a resilient sensing system for the Earth. Um, it's it's a big project. I suppose we're starting looking more at ecosystems because we can remotely sense them, and we can use software like a thing called Google Earth Engine, and all the data that's available in that to to literally try and dashboard some kind of Earth resilient sensing system. 
so I, I suppose I, I am trying to keep my senses heightened. And I think this is a crucial part of Gaia 2.0 is you would need, you would need a really good sensing system to have an effective Gaia 2.0. I mean, you need all the satellites, you need all the data, you need to spot where things are going wrong if you are to have any hope of stopping the trouble unfolding. Um, so yeah, it's a big, t- it's a big task, which is why you want to build some tools to make it easier. And um, so, funnily, I am, I am, I am doing that. And that now, Fergie, you have to remind me <laughs> what, what, what were you wondering? Sorry, beyond, beyond the business of do I or am I actually yes. wearing that in the day to day? Yes, the, the time frame in which you're, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, we, we see, you know, Greta and others say twelve years and this clocks ah. the down and, and and things like that um and, and, sure. and, and you know clearly the, 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 there is a tremendous urgency at the same time um a lot of this is is is, is already baked in to use sorry a, a, yeah a correct kind of term and, and as i understand they the beginning of this year and the first of january they changed the calculations as well did they 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 they, they, they <laughs> set and we've become warmer by 0.5 degrees or something like that um i i i, I yeah, yeah I, a tricky question to just boil down but how, no, how no, it's a time frame, it, yeah. it's an absolutely great question i mean because the central problem for us as human beings with climate change is that it has its own inertia and its own quirky time scales that don't really match with our evolved response mechanisms um so I, I've never been particularly fond of the ticking clock of we've got this long to do something um, for, um, before time's up and we're screwed. Um, because, of course, that clock might run out um, without much substantive action happening. And it would not be true at that point that, it, that action wasn't, it wasn't effective. It would still have great value to act even if the clock runs dry. Okay, you would have committed to a more pain and more hits than than if you'd acted sooner but i think as a colleague miles allen has said if there's always a, a a value in 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 action to tackle the drivers of climate change it's just the the later you leave it and the less you do the more pain you're gonna you're taking and you're gifting to coming generations and to those less well off than yourself so how do I deal with the time scales? I suppose uh, this is where I know it's urgent, so I use the feedback thinking and the tipping point thinking to try to explain to people how how feedbacks deliberately triggered can accelerate our response, can accelerate our shutdown of global greenhouse gas emissions that we all broadly can concur needs to happen by the middle of this century. That's obviously a spectacular ask. It's 30 years, it's one generation, it's a fundamental transformation in the global economy, for the better in my view. Um, but I, you know, I I deliberately then go on the hunt for the tipping points that could accelerate the transition faster than it's currently going to, to achieve that. So we know that decarbonisation of power needs to go two or four times as fast and when you get to decarbonisation of steel production it needs to go a thousand times faster to to do to achieve the acceleration you need the positive feedbacks you need the positive tipping points and that's how i sort of deal in a in a scientific way with the with the time scale target um 
Yeah. yeah. No, no, it's, yeah. It's, I guess it, it is, it's uh, the trade-off in, in ways, different dimensions, different timeframes, looking at this from, for different perspectives as an you know, earth system scientist and, uh, you know, as somebody with, you know, with, with the families, we, we you know, we, we, we look at yeah. this in very different ways. And I did a we, wonderful interview with a, uh, a great uh, Icelandic poet who's talking about this idea of intimate time and, and, uh, yeah. you know, and, and, and putting the time frame of glaciers besides, you know, families and uh, very interesting uh, you know, there's so many uh, time frames, I guess, we're juggling and, and, and thinking about at the same time. I'd like to come back maybe quickly before coming on to some of the the uh, positive uh, tipping points and, and, and leverages that you, you that you're interested in. Just this idea of self awareness again, um, mm -hmm. and what that actually means in terms of um, so you know the idea that 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 uh, mankind is becoming more aware or, or, or certain certain group, groups of People are becoming more aware of the consequences mm -hmm. of their actions, of the dangers, of the the yeah, what what, what can happen, and um, at the same time, um, the how it gets that awareness gets translated into actions. You're talking about people taking action. We 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 hear uh, there's been a lot of emphasis about individual behavior and you know reducing your yeah. carbon footprint and so forth, and that's also you know been somewhat controversially stoked up by other you know e e uh, by the fossil fuel industry in in part. Um, but yeah. um, uh, what is this connection, or do you theorize about the connection between uh, self awareness as channeled through a particular set of you know power uh, economic Structures. relations? In the mm -hmm. sense that, um, so you can have a group of people you, that, that, that are collectively aware, they want to take action, they realize there's a problem, but somehow the solutions that will, uh, we, we, we will generate will be parsed, as it were, or framed by particular economic systems and particular power relations. Yeah, yeah. well, we see that writ all over with something like the concept of ecosystem services that sort of crept out of academia and is sort of gaining gained some traction in policy circles and i'm not saying it's all bad but it is yeah. a sort of way of monetizing the 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 services inverted commas that 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 other living things provide to us and then putting that as trade as in a marketplace alongside everything else well yeah. there are dangers in that because these are non-substitutable in economic language you you can't build an air conditioner to replace the Amazon rainforest. So it should have an additional extraordinary value just for that reason alone. And it shouldn't be traded in the marketplace in the same way as other commodities. Uh, in addition, we have ecosystem offsets now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're bound to, we're bound to end up in that kind of mess when we've got a, a particular hegemony of thinking around eternal growth and um, welfare economics and marginal framework and whatnot. So I suppose to try and answer the question, um, I'm not. I'm saying in a sense that the collective self-awareness and the action. Yes, yes, we want to see stuff bubbling from the bottom up, but but we we ideally clearly need a holy alliance between the bottom-up driven action and the top-down setting of regulatory frameworks and controls and obviously we all suffer the problem that by deregulating the markets the the potential the power for governance to actually exert regulatory controls has been given away for 30 odd years and is less than it was but they they have the power to claw it back through the law 
Um, and I, I think, think I, yes, and, and you've also mentioned this recently, I think, in one of your writings about, you know, we have seen a, a rapid uh, transformation of that particular paradigm when we've seen governments now can make decisions day to day on what people can do. And broadly, you know, that's that's now accepted. You know, I mean, of course, Precisely not, not wholly, but, you know, that that so the whole idea that, you know, oh, if, if Britain did this, all the capital would disappear. And, you know, it's all about, you know, global this and global that you actually realize that a, a lot of power uh, rests in, in the hands of governments. And um, that, 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 that insight can lead to various different things as well. Of course, but that is one of the great positives for me out of the... Well, it was actually a positive, ironically. Uh, if you, It was hard to find a positive in the 2008-9 financial crash response, but, yes. but we did see European governments, for example, coming together in a very, very uncertain situation, absolutely willing to, to throw trillions at, back, um, at, at actually trying to bolster up the the system that many of us think is the source of our troubles. So that was a bad news story. But you did see how quickly action, decisive action could happen and that the, and that governance still ultimately controlled things. And now we have a better example, as you say, with the COVID crisis, that it becomes obvious to us all back in March or whenever that that you that our governments could put human life and values and welfare first and we desperately need that same um, leadership shall we say not that it's perfect but we need that same approach to the climate problem and if we can align governments and leaders with the courage to do that with the bottom-up initiatives working towards similar goals then we'll then we'll then we're getting somewhere because the self-awareness has got to in that sense, reside in the governance as well as in the pop- the non-governance bit of the population. And some of it does, you know, I, I know some very smart people, as I've hinted at, in, in the little bits of the governance world that, that I know. Um, but yeah, perhaps the biggest deficit there in this generation is, uh, is, is true leaders on this issue uh, in, with true power. I look forward to, to seeing seeing who they are and seeing them step out of the shadows. Yes, and, and they will be looking for uh, policy initiatives, ideas, uh, points of leverage. What are a few that interest you, that have caught your attention and that inspire you? Mm. Yeah, so I've touched on a couple which were around, you know, the most fundamental thing for society, the economy, is 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 our power supply, which, of course, to now up to now has been dominated by fossil fuels with all the attendant problems and consequences. But we're on the cusp, I think, of a renewable energy revolution. And we have these positive examples of shutting down coal burning for power in the UK as a first tipping point. We're close potentially to the tipping point for global renewable electricity generation in the sense that it's it's cheaper than fossil fuels across much of the world already for generation it's just we're in a perverse situation where raising the capital for say a coal power station versus raising the capital for the same amount of renewable installation uh, it could be cheaper to go for the coal option in in important places like sub-saharan africa still and that's for perverse reasons that we could could be readily changed but i'm excited because actually i see the tipping dynamics start to unfold and i see us decarbonizing power potentially 
as quickly as we need to. And that's a good starting point. And then you've got to think about the other stuff, transport, industry, and so on. In transport, I'm obviously excited by this example of the Norway tipping to electric vehicles. I'm not unaware of the fact that there could be issues trying to electrify the world's sort of vehicle fleet because of all, because that also requires particular resources like lithium for the batteries and so on. But there are other options like using the renewable electricity to generate hydrogen. In other words, there's more than one way to, to decarbonize our transport. And then I get really interested on the thorny thing of diet, land use, and so on, because, um, you know, uh, by eating red meat, it really disproportionately hammers the land, other ecosystems, and the climate. And there is various possibilities starting to unfold there, ranging from the increased interest in more vegetarian and vegan and Mediterranean diets to also to things on the technological side, like the technology of either plant-based meat substitutes coming into market and being popular or cultured meat even possibly as a technological early stage development. I'm not saying all of these things are workable, but I think it's a space I'm really interested in because I know that we will have to sort of change our, our diet, our food system in some fundamental way to be more sustainable um, as well. But I see these possibilities for accelerating change there as well. So that's just a few of the kind of bases I'm starting to think about. And it feels like I might have set myself a, a, a nice task for, for the next few years or decades, uh, hoping other people will join in and, in identifying these positive tipping points, because it's, it's right now that we need to find them. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, I did, did another podcast series called The Drawdown Agenda based on Project Drawdown. I don't know whether you're familiar oh, with yes. that. You know, it's, 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 it goes into detail on a hundred different, you know, uh, ways that we can, you know, yeah. uh, withdraw carbon from, from the atmosphere over, you know, decades. And it's very interesting, detailed uh drilling down into the, these areas like you say like food and 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 things like education for girls and and stuff in the emerging in world and and so forth um so yeah there there are a lot of ideas and uh we need to be able to 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 embody those and and uh it it, it is unfolding uh what what's next for you tim and and also i would be interested in where where you'd hope the the gaia 2.0 might might go to as well it's a very interesting uh, idea and I, I guess it's still at an early stage of development and unfolding and uh great that there are other thinkers that are are, are exploring this as well thanks fergal i mean i i certainly would love to develop that further and of course i'm trying to um I am, of course, quite focused right now on the, this identifying the positive tipping points to accelerate decarbonisation, which is a little narrower, but it feels timely because I think I think that it isn't this pos- this opportunity isn't widely recognised. So I feel a sort of compulsion to get out there and eulogise to show people that. This, this is real and it could happen because I think that might unlock a little bit of the stalemate we're in on the climate problem and it would be nice to have done that at this moment. Um, but, but the Gaia 2.0 runs deeper than that and so is closer to my heart at some level of 
an integrated view of 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 a of an approach towards fl- uh, future flourishing. Um, I've, yeah, I I suppose I. I put a first feeler out with that idea and then I've been trying to develop that thinking with my friend and colleague Bruno Latour who sadly is battling uh, illness at the moment and so that there's an interesting tension that many of us have in normal life you know you're passionate about something you don't generate it on your own you generate it through kindred spirits who you bounce ideas off and sometimes those kindred spirits are having a tough time in their lives and that's part of the reality there so i'm in a in a situation where we're we're trying to write and be generative um in the face of uh of difficult personal circumstances so i suppose i owe it to bruno and maybe i owe it to everybody to 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 just to even if it's just me on my own to keep keep hammering that that but i guess um yeah the community of ideas is a powerful thing as well and um, maybe it's my style that I end up being a provocateur and pushing pretty edgy stuff. So it doesn't necessarily naturally generate of a community of, of other people joining in. But I suppose it's lovely to get your reflections and to get some good feedback on this because it would give me a bit more of the confidence to keep running with these, with these challenging ideas in the hope that they can, can move the dial. So, yeah, that, that's a funny answer, but that's kind of... Where, where I'm at with it, I think. And I, on my practical side, the other thing I'm, I would, well, like all, like many things in academia, the decision hold, it rests in the hands of other people, but I would, I've, I've applied and I would love to lead the UK's efforts in developing uh, what are called greenhouse gas removal uh, methods. So, uh, we can all agree we need to take some of that excess carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. We, the UK, could lead the world in showing how to do that. I'd love to be a part of that. Wow, it's f- f- fascinating. You're, you're not thinking of geoengineering there. Where, where would you draw the line, Tim? Well, I I think that what's really exciting in that space is is how how the whole discourse is orbited itself back around to what it it perhaps glibly calls natural climate solutions. In other words, a lot of the buzz and the excitement is actually going back to Gaia, is going back to, oh, actually, if we actually get made some more space for trees and, and actually protected our peatlands and actually regenerated us our agricultural soils, that might be the cheapest, most effective and resilient way of, of locking up some carbon from the atmosphere. So that's part of what excites me, and you're you're right. Um, there, are, there are on the edges of that. You get into much much trickier stuff that I wouldn't, that I'm not particularly keen on. The fertilising the ocean would have a number of ecological side effects that might be undesirable. So I'm really trying to concentrate in the, when we think about what we can do on the land. It's very timely in the UK, for example, for, for the bad reason of Brexit, when we're when you have a government having to reassess how it incentivizes uh, how farmers that manage, you know, three quarters of the UK's land, what are they incentivized to do? Well, they could certainly be incentivized more to be part of uh, the grand project of greenhouse gas removal and achieving net zero sooner. 
Um, so, so yeah, I'm thinking quite biologically, but also in a quite community-orientated way, if you like, about how that might hope to be achievable. Because it's it ain't going to happen unless the people who work work the land and and draw a living from the land are on the side with it. So I find that quite an exciting little bit of Gaia 2.0, if you like. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I think we need more ideas like this, Tim, uh, more pr- pr- provocative ideas. Um, certainly the uh, rewilding kind of ideas are, 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 are grow- growing a momentum, regeneration, these kind of ideas. But yeah. also I think these kind of paradigms, these big ideas as well. Um, and thank you so much for joining us today and sharing uh, all, all this brilliant work you're doing. And I wish you all the best with it. Thank you so much, Fergus. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. 